0: Hi, it's Chris. Do you live in the New York area? If so, I have a special live podcast event to invite you to, and you're not going to want to miss it. Rick Wilson, yes, the Rick Wilson, sharp-witted, wise-cracking Republican political strategist, ad maker, analyst, columnist, and crazy good tweeter, will join me for a live conversation about the 2020 election, impeachment, and his new book, Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. You can get all the details at chrisreback.com slash rickwilson. Here are the headlines. Wednesday, January 15th at 7 p.m. in Westchester County, New York. Rick's book is released the day before. I don't know his exact schedule, but this will be one of the first, if not the first, events he does. Have you seen Rick's Twitter feed? Do you watch him on TV? Did you hear our podcast last year? Have you read his previous book, Everything Trump Touches Dies? If your answer is yes to any of these, then you know how fun, sharp, and engaging he is. Again, all the details are at chrisreback.com slash Rick Wilson. Let me know you'll be there. Drop me a line at chris at chrisreback.com. Thanks, and now to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to WorkingCapitalReview.com, sign up with your email, and each day get a new smart post delivered. As our 2020 presidential campaign becomes more intense and pointed, it's clear there's a battle going on for, among other things, America's economic soul. Politically, the debate has exploded a revival of isms, populism, authoritarianism, socialism. But through the issues from Trump's tax cuts to Elizabeth Warren's healthcare plan, the complicated arguments largely can be simplified to this. For our democracy to survive, do we need massive economic restructuring? Matt Stoller has a point of view. And if you think this battle or question is new, well, you might want to listen to him. Stoller is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. Previously, he was a senior policy advisor and budget analyst to the Senate Budget Committee and also worked in the U.S. House of Representatives on financial services policy. His new and important book is Goliath, the Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. There's also a surprising, at least to me, part of Matt's biography, and as you'd expect, I couldn't resist and had to quickly ask him about it at the top. But as Stoller outlines in the rest of the conversation, the tension between monopoly and American democracy is, without exaggeration, as old as our country. In fact, he explains how over the last decades, concentrated financial power and consumerism transformed American politics, resulting in the emergence of populism and authoritarianism and the need to create a new democracy. As Stoller has said, quote, We are in a moment where capitalism is being seriously questioned. There are corrupted and concentrated markets everywhere, not just search engines and social networks, but dialysis, syringes, baby food, missiles, and munitions. This isn't just a threat to our quality of life, but to our democracy itself. We've been here before, and we defeated the monopolists. But to do that, we must understand our own history. Before my conversation with Matt, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Several more of you did over the last weeks, and it makes a big difference. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Matt Stoller. Matt Thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. So you've written, in my view, um, as I mentioned uh, before we started this part of the conversation, um, an incredibly important book for our time. You tie history, forgotten history, really, economics, politics, democracy, all together, and you connect important ideas with original and thoughtful ana- analysis I mean, your background, it includes the Senate Budget Committee, House of Representatives. You worked on Dodd-Frank, Federal Reserve. So let me start this part of our conversation with the obvious question. How did you also serve as a writer and actor on a television show with Russell Brand? I mean, not to get all statistics and technocratic on you, but that combination delivers a Venn diagram of one person. It's like a Stoller diagram. Um, the show was right. Brand X. What, what was your role?
1: It was called Brand X with Russell Brand. I was a writer and I actually was, a, was a, an actor, kind of did political analysis. It's a, It was a bad show, but it was huh. so much fun to do. We just tried to figure out how to do a more kind of, like, Russell's vision was was we'll, we'll do a sort of a more radical version of The Daily Show. At the time, I guess it was uh, 2012 or so, 2013, and... We actually met at, at Zuccotti Park at Occupy Wall Street.
0: Huh? Yeah, I, I read that he had been brother, there. Yeah, he's something of a public activist.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my brother is a is a movie director, and I he directed Get Him to the Greek, which um, and forgetting Sarah Marshall and Russell was in both of those. And so I went to the set and I met I met Russell and just like said you know just hi just said hi, and then on Zuccotti Park we met again because he was he was trying to understand it, and I kind of explained some of the political dynamics going on. And he was like, Hey, I'm going to do this show. You should come out to LA. And so <laughs> I did. And then we had a good rapport. So he's like, Hey, just come on camera. And so we did that. And we never were able to like figure it out totally because it's hard to, you know, we are experimenting, but, um, but man, that guy is a genius. I, I mean, it, it was so fun.
0: Yeah. I, I've read, I mean, yeah. he's supposed to be really something of a comic kind of theatrical genius at the same time. Um, I think that hanging with Russell Brand in LA, that's probably a different podcast that requires a different rating. And I'm not trying to imply that you, you know, you, you did anything that would, would require uh, a different rating. But uh, hanging with Russell Brand in, in LA, there, there, there could be a whole conversation built just around that, I think.
1: Well, Russell, I mean, Russell is really interested in power, right? And he's really interested in, in kind of how people relate to power. And a lot of his comedy is based on, uh, is based on his observations about the use of space, about the use of of, um, of social dynamics. I mean, a lot of a lot of comedy, Kim actually boils down to making light of power. Mm. So there's not actually that much of a of a difference between the comedy world and the political world, as you might think. They're they're both uh, important ways of communicating, and I just I learned a lot from Russell. Uh, and was it was so fun to be in LA it's such a weird it's such a weird kind of place and it, it's actually you know at least the, the place that I was was you know sort of full of people who would who were both um, successful so musicians and 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 uh, writers and who, who were making a good amount of money but 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 they were you know russell as a as a recovering drug addict and um, an alcoholic and so a lot of the people that I was you know, that were around him had also been in, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or, or various kind of um, recovery programs, and so it was this it was kind of this weird and wonderful um, group who, in like had had seen really low deaths were wow. also you know kind of in a in a in a space where they were okay. Yeah. Um, that was it. Was cool. It was it was not a it was not an elitist world at all. It, and I just no. come from a very elitist world in politics
0: yeah and to to you know to transfer to hollywood and find that uh not elitist well that uh that goes counter to the well that,
1: i'm talking about that particular part of hollywood yeah, i got it saying, okay hollywood there's a lot of elitism in hollywood uh, i'm sure yeah, i'm, saying, I'm like, sure it's that everywhere particular part.
0: Right. And finally, to, 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 you know, just to finish out your previous point about, uh, you know, maybe a, a small marginal difference between comedy and politics. Um, you know, no, no surprise. There is theater of the absurd in, in both places. But, uh, anyhow, um, that's, uh, that was unexpected. I didn't, uh, I didn't expect all of that, uh, context to come out. And, um, that does sound, uh, like a really cool, um, experience. Um, let's talk about another, um, power struggle and, and other areas where there was conflict and, and fights and even some absurdity. Um, you write that there has always been a great American conflict. The fight between monopoly and democracy. Um, so take us back to the beginning. What are the terms of the battle and where do the roots begin? Do they begin with Hamilton versus Jefferson?
1: That's the tr- that's sort of the, the way that I framed it. I mean, that's the that's kind of the debate. I first of all, it's not the only core axis in American culture. I think sort of there's basically two questions of social justice in America. And the first is can a mass citizenry govern themselves without a king or an autocrat or aristocrat running things for them? Hmm. Can we have a democracy or not? And that's both in the private sector through markets, monopolies, but also in the public sector through uh, concentrated government or not. And the second question is, okay, if the citizenry can do that, then who is a citizen, right? And that's that's the question. You get to to women, you get to African Americans, you get to uh, property owners, right? Yeah, there's a there's those two questions, and they can be they're different and they're related, but they're not they're not the same question. So I covered. The first question, which is can a, a mass citizenry govern themselves? I, I mean it obviously veers into questions of race and gender. But I focused on the fights in starting really the formation of the corporate state in the early nineteen hundreds about how we decided to structure liberty or autocracy in the twentieth century. But to understand that, right, the people in the early nineteen hundreds, like, you know, the, the main characters there are Woodrow Wilson and, and Teddy Roosevelt you know, it wasn't that long before that there had been a civil war, right, 19, 1912, which is kind of like the election that structured corporate America, the politics of corporate America. You know, that that was not that far removed from the civil war, and um, that was kind of, the civil war was the, the second great crisis in, in America, the first one being the Revolutionary War. And so I start my book when Teddy Roosevelt in 1910, is delivering this speech on the, the great crisis. Of of the of his time, actually, I start the the book. Really starts in the mid '70s, and then it flashes back. Yeah, to Teddy Roosevelt in Kansas at a John Brown festival. John Brown being the guy who um, was involved in the violence during before the Civil War and the Kansas Nebraska Acts. Yeah. And then he was and you know, anti-slavery,
0: anti-slavery, uh, yeah, in he, Kansas.
1: Right, he tried to lead lead a slave rebellion, yep. and then uh, actually, Robert E. Lee killed him. Uh, or had, or was oversaw the, the the mob who basically had him murdered, and um and he was a hero. He was a a global hero and a martyr, and uh and that was a, a prelude to the civil war, and so Teddy Roosevelt is at a a Osawatomie, an awesome Kansas, and he's giving a speech at a John Brown festival about the need to take on the great special interests of the corporate world, which he analogizes to the uh, special interests of the slave power, the 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 cotton king, mm. right? Yep. And he's you know, and that's a direct analogy. And then he talks about the the first two crises in America. So he's talking about you know the the, the Revolutionary War and then the
0: and then the Civil, the Civil War. War. Yep.
1: Right. And so he, he lauds Lincoln. And uh, but the thing about Teddy Roosevelt that people don't know is that Teddy Roosevelt did not really like uh, did not really like trust busting. He liked monopolies, and he did not really trust. Uh, Democracy itself.
0: No, And he didn't love uh, the farmers, was, necessarily, who he was there talking with.
1: Yeah, he, he was an aristocrat. And he, he he used the Sherman Act to go after certain companies. But the reason he did it isn't the, because... The Sherman Antitrust thought, Act, yes. Right, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Um, be, it wasn't because he thought that they needed to be broken up. It's because he was angry that J.P. Morgan thought that, that bankers should run America. He okay. said, no, no. The elected president should run America. We should concentrate monopoly power in my hands. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt was a lot more like Trump than people realize. There was and he you, was...
0: Yeah, go, go ahead, because yeah. I want to ask you about... I mean, you give some revisionist views... Um, and maybe not revisionist. Maybe you just frame it differently than what most of us have read about, not only about Teddy Roosevelt, but also, tying back to, to my original question, also about Alexander Hamilton, um, and you might be the first person in these days uh, where we all are um, celebrating the musical Hamilton. You, you may be one of the first people to take a real contrarian view of him. But but continue with your point that, that Roosevelt really wanted. He, it wasn't that he had a problem with monopoly power. It was that he had a problem with monopoly power that wasn't in his hands.
1: That's right. And, you know, look, the the one of the things that really annoyed me, and I did put in my book because I thought it was such a perfect encapsulation of the moment, is this, this Lynn manuel Meredith play, Hamilton, which was really based on, on Ron Chernow's work on Hamilton. Yeah, And, and that's actually financed by the, the Wall Street. It's financed by Gilder uh Center, um, which are two libertarians who established this center on history. And they financed this revisionist view of Hamilton, which is now the adopted... Standard, but Hamilton was uh, a—he tried to foment a military coup against Congress. That sort of set up his whole career. He hated democracy. He called it a disease. Um, He didn't, you know, the Federalist Party was a party that was opposed to democracy explicitly. Like it wasn't like they they, weren't—they—they were just like, no, we should not have the people voting and that having any meaning, right? They—they so so the 1790s was a very scary decade you know when they uh, set up the alien and sedition acts um, or 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 other you know they, they, they tried to start an i mean hamilton tried to start an army called the new army which only federalists could be officers it's the only attempt to create a partisan army in american history and he wanted to be a kind of dictator that was his goal all of this is well known like this is not hidden
0: yeah. it's
1: just that it's not the story that we hear because the the, shat, the hamilton was written the play was written to justify what was, it turns out, an anti-democratic regime of the Obama administration, which wanted to concentrate power in the hands of financiers, very similar to what Hamilton ended up doing. Tim Geithner wrote very approvingly about Hamilton in his autobiography. Obama actually helped launch what was called the Hamilton Project at Brookings in 2005 or 6, which is where the Rubinites lived. Like History is very much alive for the monopolists and the financiers. They really like Hamilton because they really don't trust democracy, they're, they're technocrats. It's not as explicit today. They don't say, oh, Alexander Hamilton didn't like democracy. And we don't like democracy either. But they, are, they do kind of get there when they say we need depoliticized commissions to make choices about spending or, or, or central banking or regulations. That's a very anti-democratic vision, and that comes from Hamilton. So when I was writing about, you know, I wanted to recenter our politics around what actually happened, which is this contest of power between – more left populist types, you know, Jefferson kind of was the, the the sort of political leader, but it was really the whiskey rebellion and and, and Thomas Paine, common sense, those guys, more working class groups. And,
0: who, and, and who the whiskey the whiskey rebellion was was uh, an action taken against Hamilton, wasn't it?
1: That's right, Hamilton. That's right, and and Hamilton actually tried to hang um, Gallatin, Albert Gallatin, who became the Secretary of Treasury after. Um, okay. Uh, After uh, Hamilton, and actually during the Whiskey Rebellion, which was basically was a bunch of of small farmers, you know, Hamilton passed a tax. It was a tax on whiskey, but it wasn't just a tax on whiskey. It was a tax on whiskey stills, and it was a regressive tax that was designed to drive out of business the small whiskey producer, like the farmer who had a whiskey still just for some extra corn he grew, and it was designed to concentrate the whiskey trade into the hands of monopolists, and in fact. The, the, the tax was going to be collected by the biggest distillers in the districts. So Teddy Roosevelt admires this guy, and uh, and admires this sort of martial military spirit, and this kind of disdain for you know this, this sort of arist- aristocratic vision, and he uh, he ends up becoming this this anti corrupt anti corruption aristocrat very popular, the most popular man in America uh, because he takes over from these very sort of bad plotting presidents that are in the pockets of the robber barons. And, and Roosevelt doesn't say, I want business to go on as usual. He says, no, I want, these guys are, are, are running their businesses in a way that it's tacky and, and they shouldn't do it that way. But, I, the, the, but monopolies are good. I just want JP Morgan to do what I say. Right. And so he, he started, he created a theory called the new nationalism that was a, almost a proto-fascist, and I don't mean that this was before fascism, but, but it was scary, and that's when, when the sort of germs of fascism was, were sort of emerging, and, and Roosevelt played a part in putting those ideas together, and, uh, and that debate about what do we do about the, these concentrated uh, corporations, these railroads, these steel companies, the standard oil, that really was the contest in 1912, and it was Teddy Roosevelt who wanted the government in his hands to control them. You had Eugene Debs, who was the socialist, very similar to Teddy Roosevelt. He kind of accused Teddy Roosevelt a little bit of stealing his platform. He just wanted to nationalize the big companies. But aside from that, he, he believed in monopolies. And then you had Taft, who kind of wanted to le- let these guys alone. And you had... Um,
0: and then you had the Democratic had, uh, candidate, Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson.
1: Woodrow Wilson, right? And largely, his, his agenda was crafted by Louis Brandeis. And Louis Brandeis was, in favor, was called The New Freedom which said, let's break up these companies. We're not going to have public masters through the government or private masters through monopolies. We're going to have no masters. We're going to break these companies up and then we're going to regulate the markets themselves so you have what's called regulated competition. Yeah. And Wilson won. And within 18 months, he implemented a whole bunch of that, although not all of it. And then World War One started and, and interrupted and it all. Interrupted
0: it all and brought on the 20s. And a couple of things that really struck me in that part of what you wrote. One was um, Wilson... Actually did the trust busting. He actually did break up the monopolies, as you just described, even though he had relationships with those folks. I mean, he, he had been the head of Princeton. He, he palled around, I get maybe pal is too casual in the same circles with Rockefeller, um, and JP Morgan and the others. Was he not? Yeah. 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 And, and so for him to take that action was, significant. But that all went away after World War I and uh, then Coolidge and Hoover and a certain secretary of the Treasury, I think, Andrew Mallon.
1: That's right. I and mean, so so there's this it's this incredible twenty years from nineteen oh one until nineteen twenty, when you have first Teddy Roosevelt and then Woodrow Wilson for some really radical policies, like right? industrial democracy, you know, attempts at co ops, like all of these things, kind of a, a vision of what of what an uh, America that that might have been right just when a corporate state was new and forming like corporations have not been here, but the kind of corporate America as we know it today has is not as old as the country. There's certainly aspects of it that are, but, but, you know, really it was formed in a great merger wave between 1895 and 1904. Um, and that was was largely structured by JP Morgan and John D Rockefeller and a, and a, a couple of others. And uh, and Wilson really wanted to, you know, he gives speeches like this is not that new. People used to work for themselves, and now they work for these big companies, and this is a problem. I mean, we we should be our own masters, and we need to uh, decentralize this power. And he really did. He started to do it when we entered World War One. It was like Wilson said, you know, we're going to take the new freedom global. We're going to we're going to not just deal with the aristocrats and corporatists in America, but but all over the world. And we're going to have these new these the, the, the these freedoms. And and you know that was the Treaty of Versailles. And it was just a disaster. And, you know, obviously the war was was horrific. But then afterwards, the peace didn't last. The peace was very unstable. So within like six months or a year, unemployment jumps from 4% to 12%, which is just massive. You have this huge agricultural depression. Hundreds of banks go under. It's a catastrophe. And the KKK, which has a couple hundred members in 1916, has, you know, three, four million members by 1922 or 1923, because there's this tremendous disillusionment with going after monopolists. It's very similar to what you, which you see with the Obama administration, where they didn't do anything about concentrations of power on Wall Street. And so you saw this explosion of reactionary anger and tribalism in white America. And that happened in the 1920s, but it was far worse because we didn't have the example of fascism in World War II to show us what happens if you let that get out of hand.
0: Let me bring it forward because I want to be able to ask you about um, the Great Recession, the response to the Great Recession, and most importantly, where we go from here. But, But there's one major step between there, Congressman Wright Patman. Who was he and why should history not forget him?
1: Well, he was he was enormously uh, famous at, in the time that he lived, and he lived, you know, he was in Congress from uh, 1929. He was first elected in 28, took office in 29, and he died in 1976 in office, right? So he's there for uh, 46 years or 47 years, and he really kind of holds together a lot of the New Deal in towards the end of his life, and he helped set up the New Deal at the beginning of his career. So he... He's this farmer from, like, from uh, Texarkana, which is one of the poorest parts of the country, and it's a cotton-heavy district, and he, they kind of experienced the, the depression in the 1920s because it's a rural area. So he's kind of got a sneak peek about what's going to happen, and eventually he had uh, Mellon impeached. Actually, he doesn't get impeached. He resigns with a resigns, week of the yeah, filing of the articles, but yep. he, does, he does a trial, and he shows that Mellon is in violation, is using the Treasury Office to self-deal, enrich himself. Um, not that there are echoes of that today anywhere, no. but um, uh, no, but it's, totally, was, he, it's totally it's totally irrelevant
0: the to the news today.
1: Totally, totally irrelevant. It's just you know it's it's just old stuff that happens, it's not very important. We have no lessons to learn from it. Um, and and so Mellon you know leaves this massive deal, and then there's a bitter fight within the Democratic Party over who's going to be the um, the, the the candidate in, and how to run in 1932 and the, the monopoly, the pro monopolists in the Democratic Party are like, don't run on the economy, run on prohibition, right, which is the, sort of the social issue of the day. And then uh, the, those would be the neoliberals of the day. And then the, um, the, the, the populists, right, the left populists were behind FDR and they said, no, no, run against the bankers. And that's what FDR did. So Patman kind of laid the foundation for the New Deal with his impeachment battle a lot of people think of the New Deal as this moment where the government became a big central government and labor unions organized and there was the WPA. And that's not wrong, but it is narrow and it is fairly cynical that the New Deal was a gang fight between the forces of monopoly and the forces of democracy. It's very simple, like FDR and the New Dealers were like, we've got to go after our robber barons or they're going to finance a Mussolini over here. And they had to get them and they used the law to do it.
0: So Congressman Patman is, uh, helping advance a great deal of this and he becomes, uh, head of the, uh, banking committee at the, and the House and he's rising into power and there's a, there's a revolution post Nixon and Democrats sweep into power and take over at the House and who were the Watergate babies and why might our understanding of their righteousness not be fully correct?
1: Yeah, so there's this same theory that starts really in the 1940s and 50s, and it's really put forward by John Kenneth Galbraith and Richard Hofstadter, the great economist and, and the great historian. And really from the beginning of the country all the way up until the 1970s, people understood that economic power and political power are the same thing. Mm. You cannot be an impoverished person and have the vote be meaningful. You have to have a place in the marketplace. And you have to have economic power and political power for, for that. Political. You have to have economic power for your political power to be meaningful. And and Galbraith and Hofstetter primarily made the argument. No, you don't. We figured it out. It, inequality is not a problem. Corporate power is not a problem. Corporations are progressive. They just do what they do. Let the scientists handle it. And in the 1970s, this huge generation of baby boomers who largely grew up in the kind of the counterculture world that was heavily influenced by these guys. It's hard in the 1960s to go into a college room and not find a John Kenneth Galbraith book on the shelf, right? He's Mm -hmm. very influential. Hostetter structures the way people study history, the way they understand populism and corporate power. And it completely restructures how Americans think about their history. And so in the 1970s, you have this huge generation that thinks, oh, you know, America has kind of figured out corporate power. There's not a problem. We have, um, we're an affluent society. That's the name of one of Galbraith's books. We have no problems with the economy, and then they encounter the bankruptcy of New York City, and the bankruptcy of the trains of Penn Central in 1970, and they have banking problems. I mean, it turns out that the, the myth that there are no corporate problems, that scientists, aka economists, know how to run these businesses, that's a myth. And, but liberals haven't thought about the problem in 20 years. And guess what? Guess who has? A group of scholars at the University of Chicago who... Are, that's the lawn the economics movement or the Chicago yeah. school. Yes. And they're largely on the right. But they basically have the same view of history as, as Galbraith and Hofstetter. They also think that big business is natural. They believe that monopoly power is good. And and they think it's good for different reasons. And they hate uh, Galbraith. But, but they basically agree that anti monopolism is stupid and irrational. And so the Watergate baby generation is kind of the countercultural generation that first gets into politics in the wake of Nixon's, um, elect, uh, the, the Watergate yeah, scandal. And, and, and they come in, yeah, they, they come in in 1975 and the first thing that they do is they get rid of Wright Patman as the chair of the banking committee and they don't realize they're being manipulated by the bankers to do it because, because Patman had been having these bitter fights over banking power. And then this new generation who he helped elect because he was the first Democrat to investigate Watergate. Um, they, uh, they end up, um, Engaging in a coup against him, and that's the kind of moment when um, when this new, when new neoliberalism takes firm hold in the Democratic Party. They then undo Robinson Patman and they undo the fair trade like laws constraining chain stores. Walmart starts exploding in the 1970s, and by 1985, Sam Walton is the richest man in the country, and that's when things go off the rails. I mean, that's really what happens.
0: So, and so, tell me about that because it, and to. to- be clear. You identify. You, you are. A, you're, you're a Democrat. You identify as a Democrat. You come out pretty hard on the new Democrats, and that's the the point that you just rent, went right up to. And you name names, big names that many Democrats have revered for decades: Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Dick Gephardt, Charlie Peters, uh, Robert Reich. I mean, the list goes on. Al Fromm, Robert Rubin. You write that this group. And and quoting you here, produced reports.
1: Jordan Breyer, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, it's bad. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Well, so, so
0: you're really, I mean, I want to then get quickly to, um, Obama and the, the response to the Great Recession, because as you've stated, you're, you're highly critical there as well. You write that this group produced reports designed to infuse the Democratic Party with this new vision of political economy. Um, what was that new vision of political economy. I think you may have just described it in terms of um, uh, taking on the Chicago school, but, but why do you view, and why do you view this new Democrat group as part of the problem?
1: It's not just new Democrats. It's it's actually party wide, right? So the new Democrats were kind of the leading ones, but you know, Ted Kennedy was the guy behind airline deregulation, right? Ralph Nader was really strongly in favor of banking deregulation and airline deregulation, and trucking deregulation. I mean, this was not something that came from, you know, the right wing of the party. In the 1980s, the Democrats are like, we'll get rich, right? And it's because they don't know any other way of thinking about the world. They don't know any other way of thinking about justice. And so they start to say, well, release, concentra- release the, the, the straitjacket on concentrated capital, because concentrated capital can solve our problems. These are people who, when they were kids, they were seeing the Vietnam War. They were seeing the Civil Rights Movement. You know, the problem that they saw was the Pentagon sending their friends or threatening to send them to an immoral war. It wasn't, you know, the bankers that crashed the economy in the 1930s. And they were influenced by the counterculture. They were very sort of skeptical of government. uh, And they were not skeptical of bankers, really. They were not skeptical of corporate power. They thought that corporations could be run by, like, cool, you know, cosmopolitan types.
0: Well, there's not a lot of people who who think that Ralph Nader was a corporate apologist. Would you put Ralph Nader in that group?
1: Absolutely. Ralph Nader was a huge problem. I mean, he didn't mean to do damage, but he did massive amounts of damage. He invented the corporate right to free speech, right, because he said it was going to be good for consumers. Like, the whole 1970s was about changing the philosophical underpinning of the American person from citizen to consumer. Mm. Nader realized he screwed up later. But in the 1970s, it was all about consumer rights. And consumerism is stupid and autocratic. The act of politics is the act of coming together to decide about how we make things and how we trade things and how we speak and how we relate to each other in communities. Consuming is just such a small part of that. And, and people will, you know, if you talk to people as consumers, you know, then you're, you're really uh, eroding the foundations of democracy. And Nader didn't understand that, and so the whole consumer rights movement—you know—when they wanted to undo airline regulation or they wanted to undo banking regulation, it, they weren't doing it because they thought that it was, you know, going to help the plutocrats. They actually thought it was going to go, it was going to, you know, hurt the plutocrats. And they—they they were stupid, but you know, they were fooled by the by the Chicago School. Um, so they didn't mean to do what they did, but they did it nonetheless.
0: So. Is there an avenue where capitalism can integrate positively with democracy, or does it always get perverted?
1: No. I mean, look, capitalism is just a brand, right? It's it's not really a thing. I, I think going into this history, it's like there are lots of different flavors of how we've organized markets. It's it, talking about whether capitalism does one thing or another. It's like it's like arguing with ghosts or trying to punch a cloud. It doesn't make any sense. Um <laughs> Uh, a, a farmer's market is then a, is a market so is a derivatives market Just because they both use the word market doesn't mean that they have a lot in common they're just different power arrangements underpinning both of them and you can have a, a, a world in which there are no farmers' markets and no are derivatives markets and you can have a world in which there are farmers' markets and and no derivatives markets and and you know you can call them both capitalists or capitalists or you can call them either one capitalist. So just that framing is sort of it's something that's very annoying to me, at least. Um, so, but the question is, can, can um, concentrated financial power coexist with democracy? No. Can open markets coexist with democracy? Yes. And the whole thing about neoliberalism was, is about substituting financial markets for actual markets. So if you look at our world today, people are like, oh, markets are the problem. Like They try to put markets everywhere. And it's like, no, actually, they've done the opposite. They, they claim that we have markets everywhere, but that's because we have financial speculation everywhere, and that's what they call that market. But then, if you actually like look at the things that you can buy and sell, it's there aren't markets; there are monopolies, monopoly buyers and sellers.
0: It, just today, as as we we're talking earlier today, forty six attorneys general uh, joined a New York led antitrust investigation into Facebook. Um, you talk about other of the big uh, technological names, tech sector names um, a- as well. And it's a really active question. Um, what defines a monopoly today?
1: Brandeis said a monopoly is a unified control of a recognized branch of trade or service. Right. So it's control. Do you have control of the terms, um, the terms of trade? And, and, and you don't need 90 percent of market share to do that. Uh, you just need enough uh, market share, or you need control over a, a, some sort of bottleneck, um, so that people have to do what you say or have to abide by the rules that you set. And do, so like for example, for example, like Amazon, right? They don't control. They don't. They don't have all online commerce. Right? They have about fifty percent of it. So, fifty percent of the stuff in America that's sold online is sold by Amazon. That doesn't make them like if you were to say, oh, well, monopoly means, you know, one seller. So they're not a monopoly of that. I mean, first of all, you'd have to say, well, there's a lot of sub markets in there. So there are probably a bunch of sub markets where they are the only seller. But also, more importantly, if you want to sell online in America, Amazon has enough of the market that you effectively can't do that unless you go through, uh, unless Amazon will sell your stuff or unless you can go through Amazon. So, you you know, people will just say, I can't. I can't make it unless I have my stuff sold through Amazon. Or if you're a publisher, like you might be able to, you know, it's technically like, I guess there are ways to get your stuff out without going through Google and Facebook, but not really, Like you really need them to get your product to market, which is information. So they have enough, they have enough that they have control. That's really what it's about. It's about control.
0: To close out, two areas. One, I'm not asking you to be a political pundit, but I'm asking your view as an economic historian and about how we should interpret our times and as an offshoot, our politics. Um, on the Democratic side – uh, how do you interpret the battle um, between the economic progressives, Warren Sanders, and the moderates, let's say Biden, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, um, as you hear their arguments, and based on the historic ebbs and flows, is one is one argument more in tune with the economic times? And as you look at the history of the the tension between um, economic power, monopoly power, and democracy. Is, uh, how, how are you feeling about the economic arguments that are being made uh, in the Democratic campaign so far?
1: So really, the way to understand the debate so far is it's basically between – it's between Elizabeth Warren and Mark Zuckerberg. Right? It's not between hmm. – I mean, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, but like Warren's the one who's been in the argument with Zuckerberg. But it's like that's the fight. It's not over – it's not between the specific candidates. It's about whether we're going to be governed through our public elected officials or whether it's going to, we're going to be governed by, you know, these private autocrats, right. Who are unaccountable to anyone but themselves. And Elizabeth Warren and Bernie and a whole and increasingly most Democrats are saying, uh, no, we have to self, we have to govern ourselves through our political institutions. We have to do politics again. We have to structure markets again. And, um, you know, someone like Zuckerberg is saying, no, I, I am in charge. I am the one who, um, who makes choices about what gets said and how it gets said. And if you have a problem with free speech, come to me and I will free your speech or not. I will have a Supreme Court and I will have a currency and so on and so forth. And like that's the fight. And that's been the fight for 200 years.
0: And do you have a sense, based on the 200 years, based on the way that you've seen the ebbs and the flows and, and the population go in various directions, do, do you have a sense of what direction we're at right now?
1: Yeah, I think we're we're fighting back. I mean, we haven't fought back in 40 years, and finally people are remembering their history. And that's, and remember, and like, you know, I wrote this book. I, I wrote Goliath, right, because I wanted people to understand that if they're frustrated and alienated, and what is happening right now it is not because they're out of step with america it's because they are in step with america and they are in step with the american tradition of being suspicious of concentrated power not just in government but in these private governments that we call monopolies and banks and that that we should use the tools that have existed for hundreds of years to address these concentrated power centers and to free ourselves so that that's the point of, of learning a history is to understand your DNA, to understand where you came from, and to understand what is possible for you as a citizen.
0: Matt, thank you. At at the very end of your book, you write, Join Us, and I think what you just described, I believe, is what you meant when you uh, ask your audience and when you ask your readers to join you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Of course. That was my conversation with Matt Stoller. My thanks to Matt for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.